Um, if you have your Bibles, uh, we'll turn our time to the Word now. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 3. And um, the title of the sermon today is uh, Not What, But Who is God? Not What, But Who is God? Exodus chapter 3. For the past few weeks, if you've been with us, you've heard me, um, you've heard me uh, make a lot of deal about the question that Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? If you haven't been here, you haven't heard it, so you get to hear it now. Um, I think that's a central question in the Bible. Who do you say the Lord is? That's a, that's a theme throughout the Psalms. It's everywhere. Ellis and I were at Publix, of all places, on Thursday. We're going through the checkout line. And would you believe the question that's on the cover of Life magazine in the Publix checkout aisle? a painting of some artist's impression of who Jesus is, with big white letters, who do you say that I am? I was like, okay, Lord, that's going to be another introduction. These people are going to get weary of this. But this question is everywhere, even in a supermarket checkout line. The question is, who is the Lord? And it's a central question in our text today because Moses is about to be sent back into Egypt to tell the Hebrew people, God is going to bring you out. And what are they going to ask? Who? Who is this? And so Moses asks, well, who do I tell them that you are? In the ancient world, there was this really important idea that if you knew the name of a deity, you could somehow control that deity that there was power over it. So if you knew the name of the god of the flood in Egyptian mythology, Hopi, if you knew that name, you could control that god and summon them to you or to do whatever you needed to do. What's interesting here in this moment is that the Lord God doesn't give Moses exactly what he's looking for. He gives him an even greater truth that I hope, by God's grace to show you, should be a great comfort to your souls today. That wherever you're at, in any stage of life that you're at, in any moment that you're at, God's nature, his presence is with you. So it's important too to note here that what we're also going to see is that God's contest in this text is not with the Egyptian people, Remember from two weeks ago that Isaiah, God holds out a blessing for the Egyptian people. His contest isn't even mainly with Pharaoh, although Pharaoh's a problem because Pharaoh puts himself up as a god. His contest, his war is against all false gods who would enslave his people, who would enslave his people. So God here is announcing a war, again, not on the Egyptian people, but on false gods, demons, idols in Egypt who are holding his people captive, including somebody who sets himself up as God incarnate, Pharaoh. So if you have your Bible, let's read. We're going to read 13 through 22, but today I'm just going to emphasize really the first three verses of this passage. Exodus 3, 13 through 22. Let me read for you. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, they will ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, 
the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry, for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians." Again, I'm going to focus on the first three verses mainly, but the whole passage is really germane to what we're trying to talk about today, because God is revealing two things about himself that I hope that we'll hear by God's grace. The first is God's going to show us his transcendence, how much higher, how much greater he is than created things. And then second, God is going to show us how willing he is to be aligned with his people, how willing he is to come down and act on behalf of his people. And I want to remind you of, of the scene we're in right now. We were blessed last week with Brandon Ash preaching for us, so it might be cinematically fuzzy for us, the scene we're in. So let me rem- remind you of the scene. Moses has shepherded his flock out into the wilderness. He's been distracted by a fire which is in the middle of a bush, burning, yet the bush isn't burning up. So like any normal person, he goes and is like, why is this bush not burning up? And he goes, and when he gets to the bush... The bush speaks to him, which would startle anybody. It startles Moses. And so he's learning about God in this moment, and this is part two of that moment where God is revealing himself to Moses. God has just let Moses know that he's going to be sent back into Egypt. And remember, he had fled in part because he had tried to intervene in redeeming some Hebrew people. And he'd fled when he realized this is not going to work out. He left. He intervened in a fight between uh, two Hebrew men, and then they said, uh, who made you the king over us? So Moses took his leave. He was out of there, and he's learning now that he's going to be back. He's going to be sent right back in. So Moses in this moment is going back and forth with God. The first thing, he's, he's I'm not interested. And now he's, his second excuse, his second kind of pushback is, I don't even know your name. What am I going to tell them? And at every moment, Moses is continually hearing from the Lord, hearing back uh, answers to his questions, to his challenges. He's trying to express to the Lord, I'm not sufficient for this task. And the Lord is revealing to Moses, I know you're not sufficient for this task. That's the point. I'm sufficient. I'm the one who's sufficient for this task. And how do we learn that from the text? Well, point number one, Yahweh is completely distinct. Now, to date, we've had a bit of a, uh, in, in my sermons, we've had a bit of a, a play 
where I've never said the word Yahweh because this is a unique moment in redemptive history. Exodus 6.3 tells us that uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had never heard the divine name. So Moses is the one who in this moment learns the personal name of God. Okay, So we've always been talking about this guy, but we haven't known in the first two chapters what his name is until this moment. And it's here that we learn that God is not a what, but a who. In Egypt, the idea of a God uh, was this, this flood is a God, and we personify it with the representation of a person. But in this moment right here, Moses is learning that the true God, the master of the universe, the creator of all things, is not a what, but a who. And that has profound implications for the comfort that you and I can receive from this who's presence. And Moses' question here is reasonable, and God's answer is familiar to us, and I'm nervous that it's so familiar we might miss it. When Moses asks, what is, uh, what is your name, what should I tell them? God, verse 14, says to Moses, I am who I am. We can hear that, and we've probably heard it so many times that it just kind of blows right past us as just this Moments like, okay, I am who I am. But please note, this is a very cryptic moment. God is revealing as much of who he is as he is concealing in this moment too. I am who I am is as revealing as it is concealing. There's not a lot of clarity in some ways. And so I don't want us to miss this moment and how interesting it is. God's jealous here in this moment to show Moses that he won't be put into a box. What Moses' expectation is, based on how he's been conditioned by growing up in Pharaoh's house, perhaps, is he's expecting, oh, you're like Ra. You're a god like Hopi. You're a god like Iris or Osiris. You're like other gods. And God is taking apart his categories and saying, I'm not like any god. I am who I am. God's jealous here to show that he is alone, ultimate reality. Why? Why is that God's main concern here? Because all of the idols in Egypt and even the idols in our heart are terrible masters of our hearts. They're terribly cruel masters that will never actually satisfy us. We'll never have enough financial security. We will never be able to build enough walls, enough firewalls to protect ourselves from poverty or hunger. We can't do it. We'll never be able to entertain ourselves enough or distract ourselves enough to drown out the pleasures or the suffering of the world. And you and I can never make our heart feel complete enough from a friendship or a relationship. You don't even need me to go on because you already know the thing that I'm thinking of because it's the thing in your heart that when you think about your idol, it's if I could just have that, I'd be satisfied. If your that is not the Lord God, it's likely something that has a hold on your heart and on your affections. It's likely an idol. And here's the thing. We're all created to be glory seekers, and the things which have the most potential to capture our hearts are generally good created things that God created us to love. And yet, because we are broken by sin, we totalize the gifts as a thing to be pursued rather than receiving them from the one who gives the gift. 
thereby making it an idol. And that's the thing that God wants to make war on because God knows that that pursuit, for whatever that is, will ultimately crush you and disappoint you because you'll never really get it. And God wants to protect you from destroying yourself from that. Each of us, again, was created to be a glory seeker. We're created to seek glory, to want it, to find it, to grab it, because we're created to seek God who is glorious. And yet again, sin takes us off course, and we take these good, created things, and we totalize them and make them the pursuit of our lives, giving them our heart, mind, soul, and strength in pursuing, and yet they leave us empty, demanding more and more and more and more and more. Stability, rest, and companionship are not bad things. We're created to have them all. But the pursuit of those things, independent of the pursuit of the Lord, will crush us because we can't have those things apart from the great I am. I've often highlighted this question that we must reckon with. Who do you say that I am? And here Moses is asking God, who are you? Who do I say you are? And the Lord answers with, I am who I am. Again, revealing just about as much as it conceals. So what's the meaning of Yahweh? What in the world does that word mean? If you're not a church person, it might even be the first time you've heard this word. Moses certainly expected him to answer with a name, but God doesn't. He answers with a verb. How unhelpful is that? The native tongue of Moses is Hebrew, and the Hebrew text when God answers is, Ehya, I am. It's not even a name. Etya is the first person. I am who I am. And so when Moses goes and he speaks, I am, right? Because he's not the I am. He shifts it to the third person. He goes and he talks to him, who sent you? Uh, he is who he is. Yahweh. That's how we get Yahweh. All the other names of God that you find in Scripture are actually titles, right? They're titles or compound descriptors. So El Shaddai, right? God Almighty. El is just Hebrew for God. Almighty, Shaddai. Uh, Elion, right, God Most High, uh, Yahweh Yira or Jehovah Jireh. I'll talk about that in just a second. But, you know, the Lord provides compound name. This here is God's personal name. When he speaks, he says who he is. And here in Exodus 3.14, Yahweh himself is saying what his name is. But let's talk a moment. Let's do a quick excursus and ask the question, because uh, I've seen memes about this. Uh, did we change the name of God from Jehovah to Yahweh? What, what's that about? Because some of us, if you're old enough, you grew up, it was Jehovah in church, and now suddenly it's Yahweh, right? Is that what's happening? No. Let me answer the question for you. When the Hebrew Bible was translated into Latin, the Latin speakers, they don't have a Y in their alphabet. So they used the letter which corresponds to the sound in their alphabet, J, to capture the sound. So they don't have a J, right? They use the J to represent the Y because Latin doesn't have a Y. And incidentally, that's also the reason we translate Yeshua into Jesus in Latin. So the Latin West opted for Jehovah because they didn't have a Y in their alphabet. No grand conspiracy. If we're translating this into Chinese, you've got to figure out how to do it. They don't have a, a Y in Chinese. You've got to figure out what script makes the sound to associate and I don't know the answer to that. I, I did not look that up. But I think it's important for you to know so that you're not confused by the idea that somebody has changed the name of God on you and that somehow there's been a conspiracy to confuse you or obscure the true name of God. 
There's a movement called the Hebrews Roots Movement, and I don't want anybody to be confused by that. Um, your Bible, translators, by the way, if you look in your Bible, you'll see I am who I am, or if you have, uh, you probably have I am who I am. It's in, uh, it's in what's called small caps. Everybody see that? Anytime that you see these small caps or the word Lord, it's your Bible translators helping you to know that in the original language, the divine name is, is represented in the Hebrew, uh, Yahweh. Okay? So, Moses is sent back into Egypt to tell the people that Yahweh has seen what the Egyptians have done to them. Uh, Exodus 3.16, he's seen what they've done to them, and God intends on bringing them out. But I want to spend a little bit more time talking about what God is revealing about himself in this divine name in verse 14. What's he saying about who he is? What are the attributes of this God? Because it's important. It gets right at the heart of what I said earlier about God's declaration of war on idols. So, This verse, again, it it leaves vague, as Michael Allen points out, many things, but some things are extremely clear. And so uh, buckle up, because I want to go big, because in order for us to really see who God is, we just have to go big occasionally, okay? The first thing that we see here is, I am who I am is self-referential. What God does not say about himself is, I'm like raw, but a little bit better, Because even that comparison is insignificant. He references himself because that's the only thing by which he can reference himself. He says, I am who I am, Moses. I'm completely sufficient because I am who I am. That is significant because when he goes into Egypt, Moses needs to know that there's not a duality, that there's no real possibility that Pharaoh might win. Moses is about to go into the strongest empire of the world and tell people, hey, we get to leave because God says we get to leave. And the strongest military power on the planet at this time is not just going to roll over and take that. And so Moses learns in this moment, God that he's dealing with isn't a little bit better than Ra. He's completely different than Ra. There's no contest. All he can say about himself, because there's nobody to whom he can be compared, is I am who I am. And the second thing that Moses is learning here is that God is not dodging the question. When I was younger, when I was a younger Christian, I read this passage, and I just would think that's an odd, like, cop-out. Like, what, is, what does that even mean? Uh, I, I would have a lot of conversations about this, actually, with people at Whitesburg, which is where the Lord, um, I'd gotten saved and was being discipled at Whitesburg. And this, this passage puzzled me because this felt like a dodge to me. Like, I'm not going to tell you my true name. I am. I'm just, I am. Don't, don't worry about it. That's how I felt it was. But that's not really true what's happening here. Again, because self-referentially, there's what else can he be compared to? But then second here, he's telling Moses that he is ultimate reality. There's no beginning, end, or scale. He's infinitely everywhere, and so he can't even be measured by anything we would compare him to. So let this kind of stretch your mind even more just a little bit. The creator of all things can't be compared to anything that's created because he's not just bigger than all things. He's different than all things. If you'll permit this language, God is not quantitatively different than created order. He's qualitatively different. There is nothing 
to which he can be compared, no space in which he can be contained, and no timeline in which he can be constrained. He is who he is, is what Moses is learning here. Let's just pause here for a moment. Just what does this mean for our souls today? And what did it mean for Moses? Because it means the exact same thing. What we're scratching at here is the immensity of God. What John Webster calls the immensity of God. Have you ever thought about God as immense? I know we thought about him as big. We thought about him as glorious. We thought about him as infinite. But have we thought about him as immense? Because Moses can be with God in this moment at the burning bush at the exact same time that Yahweh is aware of the Hebrews' plight in Egypt. At the exact same time that he can be in your heart knowing your grief or knowing your sorrow or your shame or your sadness. Being present with you even as he's simultaneously present everywhere else he wants to be. How else could the thought from Psalm 139 be true if that wasn't true? Listen to Psalm 139, 7 through 12. Where should I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in shield, death, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand should hold me. If I say, surely darkness will cover me, and the light about me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness as is, is as light with you. And there's the comfort for your soul. Do you see that this immensity is totally, completely, and absolutely present with Moses in this moment? It's as if Yahweh is nowhere else, and yet he is by virtue of his name. In your own hearts, I know this. I know that you have had moments where you've felt, where the psalmist has taste and seen, the immensity of God in your life. Maybe once or twice. I don't know how often. But I know if you're a believer, you have had moments where you have felt the immensity of God. You know, in the Hebrew, the word for glory is kavod. It means weight. Because it's the best thing that we can come up with, that feeling of the presence of God, that immensity upon us is glorious. It's weighty. And I know you've tasted it and seen it at least once if you know the Lord. And I hope it makes your heart sore because it means that in your darkest darkness, in your deepest distress or your greatest joys, in your laughing, in your crying, in your festive joy, in your deepest desire to please him or your fear that you embarrass him, he's present with you immensely present with you. He is who he is. Yahweh himself is with you immensely. Just as present as all of that is with Moses in this moment, he is with you in your moments. Where indeed can you hide from his presence? Christian, maybe now you're beginning to understand and see what Romans 8 means where it says neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things past nor height nor depth nor anything else in created thing can what? Separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because where else is it? It's everywhere. Because God is everywhere. Because God is I am everywhere. Immense. And yet this immense God 
he will find himself with us. He's happy to align with us, to bring all of that and be with us. God does not leave Moses without handles that he can grasp, because he's a good God, to understand. Let's recenter our mind on the text and reread 13 through 15. Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God says, I am who I am. And he says, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God follows up the first statement of his divine name with a second name. Michael Allen, he pulls out of Augustine this thing I just appreciate so much when I was studying, that um, Augustine, when he preached this text, he recognized how hard it is to think about I am. What does that even mean? When Augustine preached the sermon, probably in the 300s, he said this, quote, perhaps it was hard even for Moses to understand, but when would they uh, to whom he was being sent understand what I am meant? When he preached this passage, he said, Therefore the Lord put aside what man could not grasp, I am, and added what he could grasp. For he added and said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This you can grasp, Augustine writes. But what mind can grasp, I am who I am. Augustine calls this name a name of mercy. I'm the God of your fathers. And just as a side note, if you wonder about how immense God is, Take great comfort that out of the mouths of one of the greatest exegetes of Scripture ever, they said about this passage, what mind can grasp what this passage, what I am, means. Yahweh in his first name is showing that he's immense, but in his second name that he reveals himself and is happy to be associated in covenant relationships. This identity is going to receive additional clarity, especially in chapter 6. We'll spend more time in chapter 6 talking about his identity as one who aligns in relationships. But we're at the point of a text where you might be anticipating, or I hope eventually you'll be trained to anticipate, a, an obvious question. Where, or more accurately, in whom do we see this overwhelming presence of God? In whom do we see the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The Lord Jesus Christ, of course. In the Lord Jesus Christ, right, we see, we can begin to put together the pieces, the expectations of Exodus chapter 3, 14, that we would have a God who would dwell with us, who would bring us out of our own individual bondages, and in Christ we see this fulfilled. In John 8, let me remind you, we read a passage earlier from John 8 today, but in John 8, Jesus is engaging with people who are hostile to him and his claims. Jesus said, anybody who rejects him is not an heir or a child of Abraham, but in fact, a child of Satan, right? Uh, John 8, 44. Obviously, they don't like this. Who in the world would want to be called a child of Satan? So they challenge him by asking him if he thinks he's better than Abraham. Maybe you'll remember this text as I say it now. And Jesus said, Abraham was happy to see him. And then the Jews responded, well, how in the world could Abraham have seen you because you're not even 50 years old, they say. And then Jesus, you remember, he just drops this bomb in the conversation. John 8, 58. 
Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, ego me, I am. Do you know that the Jews, when they translate the Hebrew Bible into uh, Greek, they translated Exodus 3.14 with the phrase, I am who I am. They translate it in the Greek, ego me." So when Jesus Christ in John 8 says, before Abraham, ego me," before Abraham, I am am, his hearers know exactly, exactly what he's doing, and they know exactly what he's saying about who he is. That's what we're saying when we call Jesus the great I am. And of course, it's what greatly offends the original hearers. They immediately recognize what he's doing, and they immediately reject him. Another instance, John 18, 6, when he says, uh, he said to them, I am he, they, the people, they fall back. Because there's no doubt about who Jesus Christ is and who he's claiming to be. He's immensely glorious God who wills himself to be present with his people. We have a phrase in systematic theology. You won't be, uh, you won't be surprised by this. But we have a phrase to be very specific about what we're talking about here. This idea that God's omnipresence, his everywhere being, right? Everywhere, all things, everywhere, Right? We have this phrase, it's ubivol presentia, where God is not just everywhere like water spills out, but he's everywhere he wants to be all at the same time. And in Jesus Christ, the incarnation is this moment where the eternal son of God, remaining what he was, namely God, took on what he was, not flesh, right? To be, to be the people's mediator, And in this moment, in Jesus Christ, we see this intersection of God's immense presence, his immense glory, focused freely in the place he wants to be, which in John 8 is right here, telling the truth to his people so that they would repent and believe in who he is. The incarnation is this intersection of God's omniscience, his omnipresence, and his his free relational wanting to be present, his ubivol presienta. His everywhere all at once intersects with his all that he is wanting to be wherever he wants to be. And to what end? To what end does Jesus do this? To what end does Jesus take all of that divinity, the, what, what Paul writes in Colossians, all the fullness of God pleased to dwell, to what end does Jesus take that immensity and take on flesh for? Why does he do that? So people will bow the knee to him? Eventually, yes, but ultimately so that he would make war against the idols which are enslaving his people's heart in the first century. His character hasn't changed at all since Exodus chapter 3. Jesus is that eternal son who takes on flesh to enter the Egypt of your own hearts to crush the idols of your own hearts and to bring you out into the promised land where you can finally rest and see the longing of your heart satisfied. Omnipresence in God is not this distant, this abstract distance Please hear this. When we say that God is omnipresence, we don't just mean that he's just everywhere, just spilling out like a cup of water that just goes and goes and goes till somebody stops it. No. This presence in Jesus, it's directed and it becomes a saving presence. Just as immense as the presence in the bush made the ground holy, so the presence of God in flesh makes all who are united to him holy. Holy. Again, to what end? To what end? 
Apart from Christ, the active mortification of sin, the putting to death the old man, mortification, the killing of sin, every single one of us is going to fall into the old patterns of sin. The same things that you were saved out of, you're still tempted to go back to, like a dog to its own vomit. Every single one of us, all the time, always, unless we're always killing it. We will always long for the meat pots and cucumbers of our own individual Egypts. It's just a fact of who we are on this side of eternity. Praise be to God. Again, Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And only condemnation for those who resist Christ and continue to practice sin, but don't cling to their Savior. We'll long for these meat pots. So what do we do? What did Jesus take on flesh to do for us, to go into the Egypt of our own hearts? What does that mean that as we take off anxiety about being able to put up enough firewalls to keep ourselves from poverty? That's one of mine. I grew up poor. And, like, my juice came in a can, poor. We didn't even have plastic juice bottles. Our cheese came in a massive block that we had to cut open and cut ourselves. Bag cheese was just, we never had it. We were poor. And so, for me, it's always anxiety about working enough to build enough firewalls for ourselves. But I remind myself that God's all of who He is wherever He wants to be, His omnipresence, right? This God hunts prey for his lions and his sparrows neither neither seed or, or harvest and all their needs are taken care of. He, his all of who he is is wherever he wants to be to take care of me. As we put off the drive to numb, to crowd out, to drown the effects of sin in the world, whether it's things we've done to ourselves or that people are doing to us, We remind ourselves that all of his, all of who he is, wherever he wants to be, is there with me in my pain and my grief and the suffering of this world. And more than that, he's not generally acquainted with it in some abstract way. But like Hebrews says, he was made like one of us so that he would be acquainted with our sufferings and be able to be a merciful and sympathetic high priest to us. This all of who he is, wherever he wills to be, is present with me in my suffering, in my desire for comfort, in my sorrow of the condition of the world, in my groaning for liberation from the effects of sin. As we put off any sin, we're reminding ourselves that Jesus Christ, all of who he is, wherever he wants to be, is sufficient for my longing and my desire. We have to be sober-minded of this again because each of us is a glory seeker. We are made to seek heaviness. We're made to seek glory. And if we can't find it, we'll make glory. My favorite Bible teachers, John Calvin, wrote in his book, he said, the heart is a factory of idols. We are great at creating things to love. The greatest gift of God's immensity is that it's heavy enough to crush the idols of our hearts and rapture our creativity if we would let it. Michael Horton once wrote in this spiritual classic, In the Face of God, I commend the book to you, In the Face of God, we must always be aware of stopping short at possessing the truth, of knowing that God is immense. We have to, we have to be wary of stopping short of that. The goal is for the truth to possess us. So I ask this question as we close. Has Jesus Christ, the great I am, the one who stands at the intersection of 
everywhere all at once, omnipresence with his all of who he is wherever he wants to be. Has that man, has the man, the Lord Jesus Christ, raptured your heart? Has he raptured your heart? Has he possessed you? Has this great I am become so significant to you that you pursue him and cast off all things? Let's pray.